Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. In the year 2006, some of you were alive, and there arose at Truman's campus a young man who would soon be, be a bird man, a young man with a honey container as a water bottle, and uh, <coughs> it's Josh Huber. Um, I, I want to tell you quickly, this is Josh Huber. He's here with Angela, his wife. Where'd Angela go? And Robin Schrader, you may remember, Robin. Um, they have come up from Columbia. Uh, Josh is a long ago Truman CCFer, um, longtime friend of the ministry and of mine. He lived in Columbia for a long time. I would always stay at his house when I would roll into Columbia late at night and catch a movie at the Ragtag. Um, I'm excited that he's back because they were gone for a while. He went to seminary at Yale and he's recently finished and he's at the Episcopal Church in Columbia down uh, like on the downtown, that Episcopal Church doing um, priestly things there and campus ministry things at Mizzou. And he agreed to come and preach a psalm for us tonight, so would you please give that for Josh B. Huber. You good to hold? Ooh, I got a mic I can hold. <laughs> this is fun. I am still Joshua Huber since the time the D-Roar introduced me. Good evening, everyone. It is good to be with you. I have an introduction, but uh, D-Roar covered most of it. Uh, I'm a priest. You may have guessed this. Good work. I'm actually what they call a curate, which means I am a baby priest. Uh, it's, my first, it's my first call, and I am doing the priestly things, as D-Roar said. Uh, before I got priested and worked some jobs and did some educations. I went to Truman. It was long ago, began in 2006 and ended in 2013. I was not a student that entire time. I was not on the D-Roar track. Uh, I worked for a while in Kirksville. Um, while I attended CCF here, that's what I did. I did mostly that, so it was a lot of fun. I did a lot of things here. Uh, I, I led a couple spring break trips, which I don't miss, but the trips are great, but leading them is, God bless them. Uh, I participated in IFG, and I lived at the uh, I-House for three years. I was the uh, second in line to the I-House throne, or something like that. But also, one of my favorite things I got to do here was I got to preach, which they continued to let me do even after some notable sermons. Uh, so God bless them, and they have asked me back here. Uh, I think things are cheerier in the memory space, but I, I, I'm told Reed earlier I was not going to embarrass them or try not to. So Reed, you can hold me to that. Um, and I love preaching. One of the reasons I love preaching is the first time I preached at CCF, I met my wife, Angela. I wasn't actually preaching when I met her. That would have been weird. Uh, oh, yeah, that's me while I was at Truman. Um, this is not a picture from that night, but that night I was wearing periwinkle uh, parachute pants by Nike. I think they were from the 1980s. I had a ratty T-shirt on. I was not preaching in shoes because I thought that would be cool, like you know, standing in the presence of the Lord. Uh, and uh, my fingernails and toenails were painted. I don't know why. That's not a thing I did frequently, but they were they were purple and green. Uh, and I met Angela, and it somehow worked. So. Oh, 
now we're getting to the pictures I do have from my time here. This is this is the birdhouse, folks. These are my uh, my fellow birdmen, um, and we are in our natural habitat, dancing with lots of clothes on. <laughs> Anybody have any questions before I like, get to the sermon proper? Am I? I think I have another slide. Oh yes, slide is this is trans. This is like next level. I. This is my slide. Is there, oh, yeah, I'm not used to playing with slides. I literally used a stained glass window as a, a visual aid uh, the other day. So uh, this is this is me with the with the bishop uh, of the diocese of Missouri, which is the eastern half of the state, headquartered in uh, St. Louis, and that's Angela. Uh, so I still wear women's clothing, as you can see. Uh, it's just episcopally uh, ordained and approved women's clothing for men. Uh, and women. All right. Well, I think I'm done. In uh, all, yeah. What what did you learn? <laughs> it is honestly really great to be here. I haven't been in this room, I think, in about ten years, uh, and I I love being here. I'm reminded of how much it means to me. I'm also reminded of how weird it is to preach looking up at people, because for a long time I've been either like level with them or they give you a big pulpit and it's like driving a fancy car and you're like zooming over the congregation. So it's, the hierarchical church is good for something. Uh, but this is really cool too, because it's like this is the place of the preacher and I, I love that. So uh, I am here to preach about something. Oh, I have, uh, I have titles in keeping with Reed's ancient tradition. My titles are Mommy, Hushin' Ain't Easy, and What's Weaned Again? I'll let you think for a while about what psalm I'm going to preach on as we go. Now, for the psalm, here we're going to get to it, but I'm going to let you continue to think. Uh, it's hard to choose just one psalm because there are 150. When I was asked to preach, I considered a handful of them. First, I considered Psalm 23 because it is the classic. You probably all know it. The Lord is my shepherd and all that. It's really, really good, too. It's not just a classic for no reason. When I am dying, I think this is the psalm I want to be read. There is something about God being our shepherd, walking with us even in the valley of the shadow of death, making our cup overflow, anointing our head with oil, and getting to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's something about all that that just really works for me in all the best ways. It is a comforting psalm, and it's better for that. Then I considered Psalm 63. Really just the first eight verses. If you read the psalm, you'll, you'll know why. It's one of those ones where it's like, oh, God is great, and then destroy all my enemies in terrible ways. And you're like, oh, the children, Lord. Um, so anyway, we memorized this uh, when I worked at Camp Eagle, which you might all be familiar with. It's in West Texas. It's, it used to be a sister camp to Glorietta. I don't know if they still do. God is good. Amen. Uh, so we memorized this psalm. Uh, I worked there the summer after I graduated from Truman. I can remember sitting in a natural stone amphitheater they have with groups of middle schoolers and high schoolers as they rotated through. And we would recite this to the trees, I guess, and there would be curls of dark vultures turning slow circles over us as if they were riding the words up into the blue. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. Good, but then I moved on. I considered Psalm 99, 69. It is just a marvelously evocative prayer for deliverance, especially if you have a healthy fear of drowning, which I do. 
Save me, O God, for the waters have risen up to my neck. I am sinking in deep mire, and there is no firm ground for my feet. I have come into deep waters, and the torrent washes over me. I have grown weary with my crying. My throat is inflamed. My eyes have failed from looking for my God. It goes on from there. It's a real desperation bop. And also, for three years in seminary, I had to repress a giggle every time we read Psalm 69 out loud together at morning prayer and got to verse 23, which goes like, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see. That's not funny. And give them continual trembling in their loins. That's the translation we have in the prayer book. It is just so wonderfully silly and absurd for a group of 21st century church nerds to gather and pray that God would give our enemies a continual trembling in their loins. Yet we did it repeatedly, straight-faced, bleary-eyed, and in unison at 7.30 in the morning. (laughs) It's a really good reminder that the Psalms contain the whole array of our human emotions, even the aggressive and silly ones. Then there is Psalm 88. If you know Psalm 88... It is that deepest and most profound of emo psalms. It's the only psalm I know that doesn't resolve in the slightest. It begins with despair and carries on with despair and ends with despair. If they made a movie, Derek would love it. Uh, The final verse proclaims, God, you have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. That a psalm can end that way directly accusing God with no hope of resolution in sight, abandoning every conciliatory, but praise God anyway, which a lot of the Psalms have, that a Psalm and a prayer can end that way and yet still be included in scripture seems to imply God can take even our, our worst and most brutal honesty. Then I considered Psalm 133. If you remember those guys up there, I have PS 133 tattooed on my right leg. I won't show you because that would be really bad. Uh, it's directly under the bone bare wing of a European starling. It's a matching tattoo I got with all five of those other gentlemen up there in that picture at the, from the Manville Birdhouse at 410 South Lewis. Does anybody still live there? Ah, oh, the sadness in my heart. Well, someday maybe. It says how good and pleasant it is when brethren live together in harmony. It's like consecrated oil you pour on a priest's head. It's like a cold dew falling in gem-like drops on God's holy mountain. It's like everlasting life, dwelling in God's favor forever. But alas, I say again alas, because it's a good word. As you may have guessed, I chose none of these psalms. Instead, I settled in with Psalm 131. Stained glass doesn't do that. <laughs> but it'd be really cool if it did. Uh, so I want to read this together. Together. Like, we're actually going to read it together, which is, in our, is something we do in our tradition. So everyone wants to stand as you are able or willing. And we're going to read it antiphonally. Whoa. This is super intimidating when you all stand up. But we're going to read it antiphonally, which means slow ping pong style. That means we're going to start on this side for a verse. And you read it all together in unison. And then you stop reading. We're going to go over to this side. And you all read together in unison. And we repeat until we've gone through the whole text. If you get lost, you can just sigh and say Selah. Then join back in as you are able. Are we ready? Y'all, they're odds. And y'all are even. Is that right? Okay. Lord, 
My heart is not haughty, nor in mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. Adonai, my heart isn't proud. I don't set my sight too high. I don't take part in great affairs or in wonders far beyond me. No, I keep myself calm and quiet like a little child on its mother's lap. I keep myself like a little child. Israel, put your hope in Adonai from now on and forever. Thank you. Y'all can be seated. That's it. That's the psalm. Actually, that's it twice over in two different translations, which some of you, I hope, caught on to. It's the same thing repeated, uh, it's, but different. It's only three verses. And I love how simple and quiet it is. The psalms, as you probably know, are full of drama and urgent desperation. But Psalm 131 is more common, daily, and essential. In its original context, it was likely one of a set of pilgrim songs called the Songs of Ascents, used by groups of people journeying long miles to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. These pilgrims came almost exclusively out of living situations that were politically unstable, dangerous, and fearful. They came out of situ situations where one wrong decision by just one neighboring imperial power could spell the almost total annihilation of everything and everyone they loved. And facing that ever-present terror, we see these people singing songs and relating to God, not just as a mighty warrior and manifold deliverer, not just as the one who created all things and yet, yet makes the very foundations of the world tremble, but ju not just as the one who holds all of history and guards the present and orchestrates the future, but also as the one who was their mother the one whose lap they could climb up into, nestle into, and rest in, safe and secure from all alarms. In the midst of an uncertain life, Psalm 131 feels as basic and simple as, Mama, I'm so tired. Help me let go and rest. That slide's blank, right? No? Anyway, I myself have been praying this, repeating this psalm in different translations this season of Lent as we prepare for and look toward Easter. I have found this psalm both settles and unsettles me in all the best ways. I find rest in the repeated words of calm and sits and stilling. I find comfort in the notion of addressing my soul like a small child. I find surprise and freshness in language evoking God as mother. And I find my own conceptions of how to talk about God and what God is like and who God is expanding. God as mother in particular on this front, for me, maybe for you, that takes some getting used to. It is well attested in scripture and tradition. For just some examples, Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of God being like a mother comforting her children. Hosea describes God as a mama bear protecting her cubs. And when the psalmist poeticizes about hiding or taking refuge under the shadow of God's wings, we are being asked to imagine God as a mama bird with us, her little hatchlings or chicks. 
This is something Jesus understood and reflected in his own life and ministry. It is, in fact, the same imagery he invokes when mourning over Jerusalem, he declares, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Most surprising, though most basic of all, at least for me, divine mothering and God as our mother is implied by the most central metaphor of the evangelical Christianity in which I was raised, that of being born again. This rebirth in faith, entering a second time into the womb as a, a bewildered Nicodemus phrases it, being born by the water and the spirit, as Jesus answers, is a metaphor that runs throughout the New Testament. We are urged to live out and into our being born to new life, born of the spirit, and born of God. Implicitly, God our mother. Later, as we move through Christian history, there are other examples. One that are particularly arresting is in medieval Christianity. This, this mother imagery gets applied directly to Jesus himself. St. Anselm, the 11th to 12th century Archbishop of Canterbury, summarized it this way, Jesus, as a mother, you gather your people to you. By your dying, we are born to new life. By your anguish and labor, we come forth in joy. St. Julian of Norwich, a few centuries later, an English mystic, put it this way, God chose to be our mother in all things. Christ came in our poor flesh to share a mother's care. Our mothers bear us for pain and for death. Our true mother, Jesus, bears us for joy and endless life. And in the spirit of both Anselm and Julian, it was not uncommon for medieval artists to decorate prayer books with images of the church literally being born from the side of the crucified Jesus. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as our mother. It is, for me, relatively easy to intellectually assent to this. After all, God is essentially beyond gender. God, though incar incarnationally imminent with us, is essentially transcendent. And thus, all our language about God is by nature desperately metaphorical. But moving beyond the intellect, considering how my actual relationship to God might change, perhaps expand, if I consider God to be not only Father, but also mother to me, feels much more challenging and almost too personal. Yet what the heck? With trepidation, let us go there. Allow me to take you back to a couple moments in my life as we reflect together on what it might mean for God to be our mother. I'm nearing the end of my first semester of senior year in high school, and I become mysteriously sick. High fevers, body aches, general fatigue, bad stuff. I admitted it for an overnight observation on Monday, December 12th. The doctors go on to perform pretty well every diagnostic test or procedure they can think of. MRIs and CAT scans, EEGs, EKGs, a bajillion blood panels, and even a spinal tap. I retell and tell and retell my medical history, including any possible pertinent details where have I traveled and when, the fact that I have eaten campfire cooked squirrel within the last several months, <laughs> the confession that I have a habit of swimming in random bodies of water wherever I find them, no matter the season. 
I have to say these things over and over to countless medical professionals, all looking interested and taking frantic notes before the next group comes in and I have to do it again. For days turning to weeks, nothing. I just get sicker. They can't figure out what is wrong. So there I remain in my children's hospital room, five stories up, suspended in a place marked by youth, vulnerability, and an unpromised future. It is the place of a weaned child in the ancient world. Many didn't make it, many still don't. Yet, there is my mom, who does not leave my side for days at a time, who sleeps in my hospital room for more than two weeks through Christmas, and who a medical professional herself eventually diagnoses me when everyone else cannot. I'm gonna cry. There is my mom, bearing the endless courage of a mother unwilling to relinquish her child to all the mighty forces of dissolution and powerlessness that daily stock the hospital halls. My mom with me, for me, working on my behalf more relentlessly than any of the doctors or other medical staff. My mom, imaging God in the daily desperate midst of my life. My mom allowing me to imagine a bigger God because I have borne witness to the immensely big love she has for me. Of course, it is not always so blessedly straightforward. Considering mothers, considering God as mother, like considering God as father, can be fraught. Consider this. For some reason, it is usually mothering I think of when I consider my own work as a foster care case manager. An example. It is midwinter 2019. Once again, I'm talking to baby Achilles. I'm driving him to his regularly scheduled supervised visit with his biological mother a dozen towns away. We've been doing these visits for over a year with no progress and no end in sight. That morning, Achilles' biological mother informed me that she just shaved her head to get rid of lice that had been living in her hair. As such, following the advice of Achilles' foster mother, we've taken precautions. Achilles is slicked with tea tree oil from head to toe. I myself have rubbed tea tree oil behind my ears and into my hair. Lice doesn't mess with tea tree oil. Or so we hope. In any case, we reek of herbs and citrus as we make our way through the Missouri countryside past white picket fences, small lakes, tawny grass, patches of bare earth, and two chestnut horses with black manes and white face patches. We take a black top curve following a yellow line. Small streams flank us. I steer through a town called Sweet Springs. It sounds nice. There's not much there. I sing. We drive on. We arrive, have the visit. After the blessedly uneventful visit, goodbye again to mother. Under blue skies, over salt-whitened roads, we drive home. Achilles sleeps as the tires hum. Above us, eagles and hawks search for small things. I watch for patches of ice and slush. On our left, we pass a white barn, a row of oaks, a brick grain silo with a rusted iron railing at the top. Up a hill, the road aims toward where our true eternal mother God must be, or at least where another hill waits. The dry grass is striated with lines of snow, 
ridged where the wind cut as it went. A puddle stamps the sky onto the road. Out here, bare sycamores stand like upturned lightning bolts, and we are sojourners together in this land of space and cold and cold. So, God our mother, in all the complexities and complications, God our mother. Might we read Psalm 131 one more time together? Maybe forward a couple more. Yeah, there it is. You can stay seated. Adonai, my heart isn't proud. I don't set my sight too high. I don't take part in great affairs or in wonders far beyond me. No, I keep myself calm and quiet like a little child on its mother's lap. I keep myself like a little child. Israel, put your hope in Adonai from now on and forever. Let us pray. Oh, mother, you see us as we are, dust and to dust returning. Help us keep our eyes level with our station, content with the moments before us. Help us relinquish all our well-practiced poses and not pretend to control the deep mysteries. We will whisper the sweet things you teach us to our soul. We will soothe and comfort our souls till they are calm and still. Like young children nuzzling their mother, toddlers dozing upon her chest, like the squirming universe settling in your lap, O oh God, our souls grow quiet within us. O oh friends, let's rest a while and wait as long as it takes. O oh my friends, let's wait and rest with our mother forever and to the end. Amen.